Alumni Audio Lab. I'm Doris Bauer and you are listening to Alumni Audio Lab, a monthly podcast from the OEAD. This is the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. In this podcast, I talk with alumni who have studied or done research in Austria within different scholarship programs and in a wide variety of disciplines. We talk about their life, their research, their background, and sometimes also about current events and developments. We are now at episode 21, and my guest today is Miguel Vasquez Puflo. Originally, he is from Mexico, but lives in Vienna now. As a postdoc scientist, he is conducting research on aerosols at the University of Vienna. Mm -hmm. In 2008, he was awarded with an Ernst Mach grant to study in Austria for one year. Miguel, welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab and thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you very much, Doris, for the invitation. It's a great uh, honor for me to be here with you today. Yeah, then let's start right away. Um, you started in chemical engineering. What are you? Are you a chemical engineer? Are you a process engineer? How would you describe your position? Uh, that's a very interesting question and uh, actually one that I uh, kind of uh, the in my most uh, recent times have been thinking about. And I think um, it is very common for people to kind of uh, try to identify a, a group of persons based on a particular history or some peculiarity that makes them uh, belong a certain group. Uh, but I think um, in this respect, uh, this is always like a simplification. And of course, in all simplifications, there is some of the information that gets lost. It's, of, of course, helpful. But uh, we, I think, uh, should keep in mind that uh, there is uh, always something that uh, is beyond that uh, simplification, that model. And in my case, I will say I studied chemical engineering. I have uh, been studying also different things I uh, during my uh, studies in Austria, my exchange program. I was doing some biotechnology. I, I'm currently in the department of uh, physics, doing aerosol physics. Uh, my PhD was uh, essentially energy, environmental, and chemical engineering. And even before then, I was working also in different fields. And I also did some courses, for example, engine mechanics. Uh, so I will say that uh, I am a person who enjoys uh, learning and uh, solving problems and uh, optimizing things. So I would say, uh, yeah, I have a background in different fields. You don't But fit I, in any drawer. <laughs> I will say that I, I like to, uh, to think... Uh, on different problems based on what's the most appropriate way of thinking about it. And I use, of course, some of my background, but I, I like to keep that uh, flexibility. For years, you lived in the United States, in St. Louis, where you finished your master's and also your PhD degree. Mm -hmm. This is a, quite a distance from your home country, which is Mexico. Mm -hmm. Why did you leave Mexico in the first place? Uh, so the first uh, time that I left Mexico was to come here to Austria. Mm -hmm. That was 2008 to 2009. Uh, I came back to finish my degree in chemical engineering. And uh, that was one year. Then I was working for two years. And then I started my master's program in 2012. And you were working in Mexico? Yeah, I was working in Mexico also, yeah. yeah. And uh, I started, it was, uh, the, the system in the US is a little bit different than in Europe because you can start a PhD directly mm -hmm. without having to do a master's. And you have to choice to uh, on the way get a master's of science that's what i did so i actually finished my master's and my phd in about uh, four and a half years mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you do you have 
do you had to do a master's and a PhD? Or could it could it have just switched from the um, bachelor right to the PhD without a master at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the program that I was doing uh, was directly a PhD program. Okay. You just have the option to get a master's on the way. It's like uh, you don't have to change a program at all. It's just, uh, let's say, a uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, capability that one has to just get the, the degree halfway because it takes so many years. Normally, it's uh, five, at least five years. I was a little bit quick, but normally it's five to seven years, I will say, to do a PhD. And this is just an option that you, okay. after certain requirements, just get a, the title without having to do the whole uh, studies. studies. Mm -hmm. How would you compare your studies in, in Mexico, in Guadalajara, and in St. Louis in the U.S.? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I actually think there was a lot of similarities, especially in, uh, I think, uh, Mexico and the U.S. are certainly different countries, but somehow I think they both lie in the very uh, American way of doing things. So I think we both are uh, rather pragmatical, and uh, the focus on industry is really on making things big, optimizing uh, using tools really to solve uh, whatever is required. Um, so I think that was very similar. In terms of the labs and stuff like that, I think um, St. Louis was definitely an institution where we had a lot of money. That That's a private institution. It's a really prestigious and expensive one. I, of course, was uh, studying under a scholarship, but um, uh, people who do undergrads, they have to pay a lot of money. And the university has a lot of uh, resources, so they can really invest in... Um, laboratories who are equipped at a very high level and also have reagents and uh, a lot of infrastructure that is really useful. Uh, but on the other hand, I think in my university in Mexico, we really had the the uh, chance to focus on very uh, specific problems uh, based on the resources that we had available. So I think uh, both universities uh, were really good and they essentially profited a lot based on the things that they had available. I took a look at the website of the institute. I think where you've been, the Aerosol and Environmental Institute. Was it this? Um, um, in St. Louis. In St. Louis, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've seen there are mostly Asian and from people from India and from Asia somewhere. Do, do you know why? Uh, well, I think <laughs> that demographically speaking, both countries are almost half of the world's population, so that. Uh, Uh, yeah, but it seemed like they're entirely, so every tenth was like a white or black one, but the, most of them were Asian, uh, uh, India, Indian, and um, yeah, some Chinese. Yeah, Chinese, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I think uh, one of the reasons also is because in these levels, uh, they are really highly competitive. So there is universities in both countries that are really specialized on making people, training them for becoming mm. uh, researchers. Whereas in other uh, countries, I think it's possible and it's likely that it happens, but they, there is not like centralized universities that just focus completely on making that most of the graduates go to uh, research. And I think that's one of the advantages that those two countries have. Mm -hmm. And I think also there is uh, a lot of um, uh, the question also on uh, what people want to do uh, and what people can do also in their country. So I think there is a lot of opportunities in the U.S. for uh, people who are very highly qualified mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of Chinese and Indians take advantage of this uh, opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, was it the right decision to leave to the U.S.? I think the decisions is always hard to tell. It's always, I think, uh, short term, medium term, last term, a long term. Uh, I think it has definitely a lot of advantages to be in the U.S. I had the opportunity to 
that was actually my first experience with uh, doing research like highly uh, sp uh, specific and focused on my own. I had taken a lot of classes here and there and uh, really learned a lot. But really doing research was my first experience in, in San Luis. So, and I think I, I had uh, many advantages of being there. I think uh, I learned a lot of uh, characterization techniques. And I mm -hmm. also met a lot of people who were... Uh, what do you mean inspiring. by characterization techniques? Uh, for example, I learned how to use uh, electron microscopes mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. really expensive equipment that you cannot uh, easily get if you don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, like XRD, yeah, there's hundreds of different techniques to uh, essentially uh, get the properties of matter or of samples very, very nicely. But as you said before... Your stay in Austria was the first um, longer time abroad, right. years before you left Mexico to the U.S. How and yeah. why did you choose Austria for this first stay? Uh, so that's a very good question. I actually was interested uh, at the beginning uh, in taking a look uh, and doing an exchange program in the U.S. And I uh, was having some trouble uh, communicating with uh, the universities and It was not that uh, straightforward. I think people in the U.S. are not necessarily that open for this kind of Erasmus experience. So they were always asking me, oh, are you interested in doing an exchange program for a PhD or a master's? And it was, no, it's, it's just a, an Erasmus. And uh, I then was looking also in different countries, and I realized that in Europe there was, it was like a real big thing. And I also at that time was uh, learning German, and I really liked the language, and it was really nice. Uh, Most people uh, tend to like uh, languages by the way they sound, like French. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful language, a lot of people say. But I, I really like uh, German because it's a logic, a very logic language. And ah, that's very the, mathematical. the researcher in you and the yeah, straight, exactly. straightforward one. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I, I got um, the chance to start learning German. It was very difficult at the beginning mm -hmm. because of the Germanic roots of the words. But uh, eventually I was able to learn a little bit better and it just came became to the exponential learning phase where you kind of uh, very quickly become comfortable. And yeah, I was then taking a look at uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and Austria uh, seemed to be one uh, very interesting place. And I, I was also interested in learning something different. I, I knew my university had a very big focus on mathematics, for example, and I wanted to do something very applied, very lab-focused. And I found this program at the Fachhochschule Krems, And I really like it because it was, uh, uh, first of all, a Fachhochschule, which I think the system in Mexico is uh, really hard to compare because our universities are kind of um, more theoretical always, but not necessarily uh, for all fields. Mm. But here is really separated like a uh, Fachhochschule from university. Mm. And I really like this uh, this uh, aspect of this Fachhochschule that we had a lot of labs and a lot mm. of... So the more practical more way practical of, way. of yeah. working, and that, studying. I think at that uh, time it was something that I was really in need of uh, doing and learning. Yeah, and I also found this uh, program from UAD and I applied for it and it uh, everything went well. And yeah, I was able to come here uh, and study and learn a lot and um, of course improve my German. <laughs> <laughs> You studied your studies in the field of chemical engineering, as you said before. Mm -hmm. What was so fascinating about chemical engineering, or why did you choose it? 
it was actually a, a hard, a very hard decision back then. Uh, I think uh, the younger we are, we always kind of feel like uh, if you choose one thing or the other, it's going to completely change and determine the rest of your life. And then you realize it, uh, at some point it defines you uh, at some extent, but uh, in reality, many fields uh, eventually converge. So um, I was very interested in uh, looking beyond at the things, how, how things uh, are connected to each other and how things uh, essentially uh, function from basic principles. And um, I think um, based on my experience before, chemical engineering just seemed to be the field that offered the most wide uh, array of uh, understanding of nature and of uh, our environment. Uh, and that's something that I really liked, this uh, process uh, and thinking about uh, things in a very systematic way and uh, making things not only small but also big, which I think is uh, something very peculiar from chemical engineering, that whatever we do, we do it big. We, we, <laughs> we escalate uh, uh, processes from lab scale to industrial scale. And, mm -hmm. So let, then let's talk about your current work and your resume you, resume. you call yourself a problem solver of complex technical issues and processes. I find that very charming, <laughs> the problem solver. On which complex technical issue are you working right now? So right now uh, in my postdoc, uh, we are trying to s uh, measure how quickly aerosols grow. And that um, depends on the scale, on uh, the way the... the uh, the particles will be dominated. So there is uh, an aerosol for in the first place. It's just any particle, solid or liquid, that is suspended in, in a gas phase. Uh, so this goes from almost atoms all the way to very big particles uh, like uh, rain droplets, few mm -hmm. millimeters, even centimeters perhaps. Uh, so there is a huge uh, difference between the properties of these aerosols if they are really small, like a few atoms or molecules, or if they are that big. And these different regimes uh, are dominated essentially by a balance of forces or by which is the slowest step that kind of uh, determines how the system behaves. And we are uh, particularly familiar since uh, Newton, I would say, with big, big uh, things, how they behave. They behave Newtonianly. And uh, there was uh, about 100 years ago, actually in Vienna, this uh, new movement of uh, quantum physics. And uh, then it was kind of like nothing is certain, you don't really know where an electron will be. And we in aerosol science are essentially, we uh, apply in both extremes. We have both frontiers. And somehow if we are in particular sizes of aerosols, we kind of have to recognize, okay, which one is important and which one becomes uh, dominant. And there is actually a more Newtonian approach to most of the aerosol science. And that's one of the things that make very challenging to connect and uh, the way aerosols behave when they are getting smaller and smaller. Why is it important to know how they behave when they get smaller or bigger? So uh, aerosol dynamics essentially are very important for different applications like uh, environmental uh, weather modeling simulations. Because most of the, let's say, the dynamics or most of the important events occur in the very small scale. And those are those who determine if, uh, for example, a cloud is going to reflect most of the solar radiation back to space or if it's going to let it through. So that's one of uh, currently one of the biggest uncertainties in uh, global warming because we actually don't know whether an aerosol is uh, uh, 
reflecting back or letting uh, light pass through because this depends a lot on the material mm-hmm. and not the size. And that's, uh, let's say, a field that is not well understood at all. So mm-hmm. there is a, like the error bar is huge for that for that particular, it's called albedo, how, how much light it's uh, reflected or passes through. Uh, and this uh, essentially changes a lot based on how quickly the aerosol evolves. If you have, for example, a lot of small aerosols, they behave like a gas. A gas atom moves so quickly, it's a few kilometers per second mm-hmm. uh, that they are just bouncing all over. And, and if you uh, go to larger aerosols, they are really slow. I mean, they are just being bombarded by these small uh, gas atoms. And the average uh, velocity, because it's being canceled from one side to the other, is very slow. Uh, so this essentially determines how quickly an aerosol will grow and if they grow too quickly, for example, the optical properties are going to change. If they the, grow the what? Sorry, they grow too, too fast. <laughs> uh, sorry, the uh, optical properties. Mm-hmm. So how they behave uh, based on light. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm doing right now is uh, trying to measure how quickly aerosols grow in their in a natural environment. Let's say uh, in a simulated cloud that we mm-hmm. do with an adiabatic expansion in a chamber. What is it? Adiabatic expansion. Mm-hmm. That's a uh, uh, the process on which uh, the pressure is uh, changed very rapidly so that mm-hmm. a gas expands and that causes cooling and the cooling causes the water to condense to be supersaturated in the in the gas mm-hmm. and that uh, drives essentially uh, droplet growth. And how do you measure that? We are using lasers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have different wavelengths of lasers and we are looking at how light gets scattered by the particles. And scattering essentially means how the light changes its direction. And there is uh, a theory, uh, the so-called me theory, that predicts how much light will be uh, uh, scattered in a different angle. And this amount of light can be calculated and also measured. So what we are trying to do right now is uh, essentially to go down in sizes that can be measured by this technique to the free molecular regime. The free molecular regime is... uh, kind of the the regime where molecular effects uh, become more dominant than Newtonian forces, mm-hmm. to say somehow. And this uh, uh, can have a lot of, uh, let's say, impact in the theoretical understanding of how quickly things grow and how they evolve. Mm-hmm. Mostly, we've heard it now, you're conducting research on processes, on these moments when one element is changing from, from liquid to, to, to gas or so. What is so fascinating about that moment when a substance changes its physical state? This process is uh, normally called nucleation, the change of state from uh, gas into solid or liquid, for example. And it's very interesting, the, the fact that uh, this is a classical problem. It's been there for centuries, and there is no, not yet like a clear answer what's what's happening. And this is actually also in between different disciplines. For mm-hmm. example, thermodynamics, where uh, all of the free Gibbs energy and all of this uh, theoretical understanding of how matter behaves really have such problem explaining uh, the difference between equilibrium, what would be, let's say, if you left the system forever, what would be the final state, and then how quickly it happens, which is uh, kinetics. And there is a complete disconnection between these two. And I think uh, one of the main uh, reasons is that we don't really understand nucleation. That's one of the things that is limiting the connection of these two fields. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really fascinating the fact that um, 
if we could uh, find a way to connect these two fields, uh, we will be able to essentially have uh, prediction capabilities of a lot of different uh, unexpected applications, not only in the atmosphere. There is also a lot of industrial relevant uh, problems that uh, essentially uh, lie on this. And one of them is, for example, uh, computer science and uh, electronics. Where where do you use this technique, so this, this knowledge in computer science? So right now, actually, uh, industries are a little bit afraid of this process because we don't understand it. Mm. So they try to avoid it. And that's one of the limitations. If we uh, look at the way, for example, microchips are done, most of them try to avoid nucleation. They say aerosol is a terrible thing. We have to do from the gas to a solid surface, like a, to a plate or to something big. Is this what you were researching on in your PhD? It's related. Also. It's related, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, it's related. You can tell about this uh, also a little bit more because yeah. it's also very interesting. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, for example, if we could understand, okay, nucleation behaves this way and this way and this way, we could uh, utilize it to create technology mm -hmm. more rapidly. Uh, and that will uh, impact in the cost, for example, of electronics. So we could produce very accurate sensors, very fast uh, even quantum computers with this technology, if we were able to control it and understand it. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. I think, some of the relevance mm -hmm. of uh, nucleation. Mm -hmm. in, in, in your PhD thesis, for me, it sounded like you researched for years on cleaning a curve. <laughs> 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 What's about that cleaning of the curve? Uh, that was actually half of my PhD. The cleaning of the curve was uh, only the first part of it. And the second part, I was more focusing uh, on uh, nucleation of uh, silent, silent paralysis. So cleaning curve, I will start with this, uh, is essentially, uh, curve is uh, the residue that uh, remains after cutting a silicon ingot, uh, which is a cylinder of ultra high purity silicon. And we need to look at this as a very uh, expensive product because you need a lot of energy to purify silicon mm -hmm. to this level. And uh, by slicing it, normally it's done with a uh, diamond wire, you essentially waste half of the material because you need very thin wafers and uh, the material just gets lost and is uh, contaminated at the micro scale. So it's really hard to purify. What do we need these wafers for? These wafers are used for uh, computer chips, for example for solar panels. So it's like a, a basic product for utilizing most of the technological uh, uh, electronics and mm -hmm. most of the solar panels also have a silicon wafer uh, basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, after uh, this uh, material is sliced, is then uh, the wafers are polished and prepared uh, further, but the curve is just discarded normally. And if we think of the price of curve, it depends of course on the price of silicon, but it's a lot of money. I mean, the the... I think the kilo of uh, silicon is probably right now 400 euros at least. And it's just being wasted, all of this material. Mm -hmm. So the, the objective of this first part of my uh, PhD was to clean the most difficult contaminant, which is uh, carbonaceous compounds made from the lubricant that uh, essentially get embedded into the curve. Mm -hmm. To cool it when they cut it. or Exactly. Yeah. That's the coolant and the lubricant of, mm -hmm. the, of the wire. And uh, we actually uh, had pretty good results. We were doing some uh, comparison of the kinetics of um, burning. We were actually burning it with an aerosol process because uh, we have two competitive processes. One is silicon oxidation, mm -hmm. and we don't want to oxidize uh, silicon because it becomes kind of sand again. Mm -hmm. uh, but we want to oxidize the uh, contaminant, the uh, carbon. And uh, we were doing this, and we found optimal conditions to maximize carbon removal and minimize silicon oxidation. 
And that was the first part of my PhD. The second part is uh, uh, I was working on building a reactor to mm -hmm. study nucleation from silane pyrolysis. Mm. You built it yourself? I built it myself. Mm -hmm. I was uh, getting the support of uh, some colleagues and uh, also my uh, committee members and uh, some people from the industry, from San Edison. Uh, there was a committee member from there or two. Uh, mm -hmm. people what, what is that? Sun, uh, Sun, Sun Edison is a company uh, that uh, produces uh, silicon. Mm -hmm. That's uh, purifying silicon to make uh, wafers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were very interested in uh, in this process because they also couldn't understand nucleation yeah. and they wanted to improve their reactors, but they couldn't because they were getting these explosions of nucleation mm -hmm. and particles dust form forming. And they were trying to control it, but if you don't understand it, you, you can't you control can it. Improve it, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were really interested in this, um, and we were essentially trying to study uh, three projects in there. One of them was to see how um, uh, the nucleation rate compares to the condensation rate of aerosols, and in there, uh, essentially, we need metrics to to measure how quickly things. Evolve. Normally, if we have a, a slow process, we can use a, a timer. Mm -hmm. But if you have a process that is like a really nanoseconds or... Yeah, you can't click quick. the timer. <laughs> <laughs> you can't click the timer. <laughs> so we were essentially trying to compare uh, the kinetics of one process compared to the other. So we were using one, uh, the condensation metrics compared to nucleation metrics. And we were getting some relationship. Uh, then the second part was... Uh, to try to see how uh, some stable clusters that form behave uh, based on process parameters. Mm -hmm. And this was also to uh, try to provide some background on what is going on actually in your nucleation because it's really uh, such a quick process and you we don't really know. It's like it's like a tree. It has many branches and some branches are really like cut mm -hmm. and you don't really know if they are going into another branch or just staying there. So you just get like a different uh, picture and you don't know at what time this, uh, let's say, this uh, process was occurring, and if it's the dominant one or if it's an irrelevant process. So we were looking at this uh, stable cluster uh, to try to to track down what's its behavior, what's its role in nucleation. And, uh, and uh, what is its role? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are still debating it. Uh, I, th I think it is not... Uh, some people <coughs> say small particles are nuclei. I think it actually is not a nuclei. I think it's a quench nuclei. So it's, it's a... a particle that was going to become a nucleus but was quenched by a process and it stopped becoming a nucleus so it's uh, mm -hmm. let's say it's like a, it's a particle that didn't reach the action mm -hmm. point okay. it's just was uh, tried tried but not tried reached. but didn't succeed <laughs> but and i think that changes a lot the picture of how we understand nucleation because mm -hmm. mo most people who use these techniques they think um, this particle is actually the nucleus what they are measuring mm -hmm. and i think it's actually not the case and mm -hmm. uh, that uh could uh, change a little bit the the way we we look at this uh, complexity because mm -hmm. it's it's a very complex uh, process. I didn't mention it, but silane pyrolysis is uh, silane is uh, is like methane. It's uh, is a silicon with four hydrogen atoms, and methane is carbon with four hydrogen atoms. So both uh, have the property of uh, polymerizing, like organic chemistry. Polymerizing is is uh, that um, many monomers uh, combine together and mm -hmm. make a larger so chain. Yeah, they, mm -hmm. and they, they react and make larger chains. So mm -hmm. silane has these uh, properties, like uh, organic uh, chemistry, that they react and start forming larger, larger and larger mm -hmm. chains. So you really have a whole slew of uh, possible molecules. Mm -hmm. And there is some studies, very interesting studies, uh, that explain, okay, there is uh, really thousands of possible mm -hmm. uh, candidates that could be 
producing nucleation. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, really, we cannot measure how, because it's so quick, we cannot measure and characterize what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I really think... Uh, but is it, is it uh, let's say, necessary how they become the, poly, um, the, the polymers? Because isn't it more interesting that it becomes the polymer? So y you mean the, re the reason why it becomes a polymer? Yeah, no, you just said... Um, that you didn't uh, that uh, we don't know how or that you were researching on what happens in exactly that moment when they when they connect yeah yes yeah. yes yes i i think i still didn't get it why it is so important to know exactly this nanosecond moment why why is it so important uh so i think uh, if we understand when or what conditions make a particle nucleate we can um uh, Either if we want to produce nucleation, we can choose those conditions to promote it so that we can say, okay, right now, let's switch on the nucleation mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. and we want it to happen. Mm -hmm. Or switch it off. We don't want nucleation to happen right now. Okay, we will not go this way, which we know exactly that is causing nucleation. Mm -hmm. uh, because nucleation, we can understand it is like an explosion. For mm -hmm. example, you can have a condition that looks exactly the same as another. And in one of them, you get a, an explosion of particles out of nowhere on the other case you get nothing you still have a gas which uh, doesn't produce anything mm -hmm. so the results are quite dramatically different and sometimes people don't really understand it was both of the experiments the same or they try to get the same and the they results didn't. are completely different mm -hmm. so that's uh, kind of mm -hmm. the relevance of uh, getting mm -hmm. to understand exactly this moment what is causing it uh, the particle to nucleate what at what point it actually happens because the, the nucleation is a change of phase that means there is no way back it's like a uh, You're crossing the line. Mm -hmm. Once you cross the line, mm -hmm. you, you're mm -hmm. gone. It's mm -hmm. changing uh, mm -hmm. the the state of the matter. Mm -hmm. And it will, if it's a super saturated system, which means it's not uh, stable thermodynamically speaking, it means the whole system will collapse mm -hmm. very rapidly into this new state. But only if there is a nucleus to allow the, mm -hmm. the condensation to happen. Mm -hmm. As, as you said, uh, you were quite successful, you and your team, um, with finding out these moments. Is it used now in industry, this technology or this, this knowledge you created? With that, the was the, uh, that was actually the third part of, the, of this project. Ah, okay. And we were actually trying to use this knowledge of, uh, uh, let's say, how quickly uh, the relative rates of nucleation and condensation to actually predict how these reactors uh, will behave based on the different conditions. So we were essentially trying to predict directly how much of this aerosol will convert into growth of a silicon bead compared to uh, how much it will just be eluded as a, as a waste, as a dust. Mm -hmm. And um, that uh, study is also in my dissertation. And uh, the problem is also uh, there was a crisis on silicon about those moments. So actually, Sun Edison went bankrupt. Oh. And uh, yeah, and... At least uh, the part uh, in charge what, of... What, what kind of, of crisis? What? Uh, that was uh, 2016, I think. Uh, the gasoline becomes just so inexpensive. Just mm -hmm. the, the barrel of uh, oil dropped dramatically. And uh, silicon is a little bit more expensive than using uh, fossil fuels, at least currently. And that essentially had a big impact on the finances of these companies. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't uh, survive. <laughs> At least not uh, short term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you've worked in, in it not now, um, 
not in research, but in, in working in different disciplines. You've been in a water quality in, in the water quality instrumentation branch or in the lacquer industry in Austria. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, are processes and these technical solutions you're working on, are they only universal? Can you use them in so many different areas? Can you work in different areas? Uh, I think chemical engineers are one of the most versatile uh, fields for working in different uh, fields. And uh, I think one of the key why, it's, uh, why we are so flexible is that uh, we essentially uh, are very good at looking and analyzing at problems which may com look completely complex and very different from the rest of the problems in the world. But actually there is some similarities always. So there is always some things that you can uh, uh, transfer. There is always knowledge and skills that you can transfer. Uh, and one uh, particular example of this is... Uh, Uh, this job in the lacquer industry. I was uh, working there. Is, uh, a, it's a field that is also uh, working on surfaces, so there is not completely scientific understanding on why surfaces behave one way or the other. But uh, the processing of the lacquers is uh, based on uh, kinetics. And uh, uh, my studies on different and gas phase uh, kinetics was very helpful for providing, for example, how long uh, will this uh, lacquer... Uh, have a shelf life, which is completely a kinetic process. You can calculate how quickly the, the material reacts at room temperature and then predict the shelf life of the product. And at the same time, you can do this, uh, this kinetic study for the processing of the lacquer, which I was doing some, uh, some analysis on the residence time distribution of the lacquer inside an extruder. And I could calculate, okay, if you uh, operate this extruder at different conditions, you may uh, affect the life uh, shelf of this product mm -hmm. or may also improve some properties that you want to uh, create on this lacquer. Mm. Mm -hmm. For you as a problem solver, what was the biggest problem you solved in your career until now? Ah, that's a very interesting question. I, uh, I don't know if this is the biggest, but it's one that... Uh, Or the I, trickiest one. The <laughs> trickiest one. <laughs> um, so I could mention the one that I, when I was working in the water industry, Probably it's not the biggest, but at least because we haven't talked about that, I think it's uh, worth mentioning. Uh, so we were having a problem there. Uh, we were fixing uh, uh, sewing water uh, pipe piping, piping because they uh, they can be either the, the street can be open with an excavator and then the mm -hmm. tube replaced, or there is a technology. It's actually a Swiss German technology where some ro robots are inserted in, in into the. Piping, for, for cleaning the pipes. For cleaning the pipes mm -hmm. and then for uh, recording inside. And then after cleaning the pipes, you can uh, introduce uh, like a new pipe and cure it with a, a resin, with epoxy resin. So there, there was a big problem because uh, uh, the polymer was supposed to cure very slowly. It was mm -hmm. also a kinetic problem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in this case, it was uh, curing very rapidly. So there was having like an explosion of, uh, uh, of reaction inside. It was heating up and then kicking off the reaction And uh, they were having problems because the pipe, instead of remaining very thin, mm -hmm. uh, it was essentially uh, exploding and getting bubbly. And the pipe was essentially becoming a, a full cylinder, mm -hmm. which was is completely undesirable, of course. So there was this problem. And uh, I was not even in charge of this uh, branch of the company, but I was invited to, to help because it was the main uh, a customer of the company. And I, I, took, uh, I did, did participate one day with, uh, with these uh, colleagues. And um, yeah, I suggested, well, it's probably because um, there is some contamination that is catalyzing the reaction. So we were doing some analysis 
And uh, after making some combination, we found the right amount of... Uh, it was actually an old hardener with a new resin from mm -hmm. the manufacturer that mm -hmm. got mixed. Okay. And that combined with a contaminant from the from the pipes, from the pipes. Mm -hmm. made the reaction get uh, kick off and we could find the, the problem the and problem. that was really good because the customers say, okay, if you don't solve this, we're going to stop purchasing from you. But mm -hmm. after that, they essentially okay. continue okay, yes. and regain the trust of our company. Mm -hmm. mm. So what brought you back to Austria last year? Uh, two years ago, 2017. Years ago. That was actually my beautiful wife. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the laugh. It's the always love. work or laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the problems you are working on are, as we already heard, without exception of high value for industries and the private sector. But you are working in public research. Why? That's a very uh, good question. Uh, so I think uh, the skills of solving problems are useful for both uh, industry and also uh, fundamental research. And I think uh, those uh, skills are transferable. Mm -hmm. And I assume you could make a lot of money if you were working at the private sector. Um, Or am I it, wrong? <laughs> it depends. I don't know. It's uh, it's not always a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, comparison, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think some companies could be profiting from different skill set. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think uh, there is some scientific problems that could also be uh, profiting from problem-solving set. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's uh, As I said, it's uh, a matter of uh, the opportunities that one gets. And yeah, it's... Mm -hmm. How does your daily work look like? Are you in the lab or at the computer or sitting in a chair and thinking about the problems? What? How is a, a let's say a usual day in the life of Miguel? It's uh, different from from day to day. Actually, it's I would say even sometimes not completely uh, uh, like a routine. It really depends on the on the part of the project and on the project that we are doing. So, for example, right now I'm uh, that I'm building this uh, device. We essentially have some days where we are just constructing the parts, and we have also some days where we have to analyze the data. I was analyzing uh, 150 gigabytes of data last month, so it was the whole day just sitting on the computer programming. And, and constructing really means you're sitting there with a screwdriver and building up your equipment and your devices, or. Or sitting, constructing, like drawing the plans or so? Uh, both, actually. Sometimes we get some support from different departments that uh, they help us um, build some components or machine some parts. But uh, yeah, I also get the screwdriver and build electronics on my own and uh, uh, put things together. Even some optics, I was learning some optics in this uh, postdoc. And... Uh, It was uh, also at some points uh, drawing the, the parts so that uh, they could be constructed or manufactured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to ask you one question as it's so current right now, as you are Mexican and as you were living in the United States for quite a long time, 
How do you see the bad relationship right now between Mexico and I don't want to say between the US, but between Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> or how does it offend or affect you as a Mexican living in Europe? That's a very interesting question. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I just left on exactly after Donald Trump was elected. So I, I was uh, on the right time away. But I have a lot of uh, friends and uh, people that I know that are still in the US. And it seems uh, like um, things in the in the essence haven't changed that much. So, the, of course, politicians speak a lot of hard words. But I think at the end, uh, both countries are neighbors. There is always some friendship and some rivalry. It happens the same, I think, uh, Austria, Germany. <laughs> uh, so this is, uh, I think, a natural behavior. Like uh, mm. you kind of, with your brother, you, you kind of uh, sometimes like him, sometimes like him mm. a little bit less. But at the end, I think we are... Uh, pretty much in a uh, friendly relationship. The on, on a private level, you mean? Because right now they're arguing who is paying for that wall. <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't affect you in, in your private life or your friends there. Yeah, I mean, I think the wall at the end won't get uh, paid, not even built. Yeah. It's, of course, a lot of uh, talking. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that doesn't really have that much of an effect. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a quite impressive career at, on paper, as I've read. Are you satisf satisfied with it until now? With my what? Your career. My career. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, satisfaction. It's, uh, <laughs> I was talking with a colleague once about satisfaction and the meaning of satisfaction, which uh, seems to be uh, how you see things right now compared to how you expect the things to be. And that seems to be also a very uh, sociological issue that uh, is, uh, we are putting our, uh, let's say, emotional uh, well-being based on the eyes of some other people. So it's a really, really complex uh, issue. And I think, uh, I think we just need to keep working hard and uh, keep trying our best. I'll ask it differently. Are you exactly where you want to be? in your career and in your living in Austria and at the University of Vienna and researching or conducting research on these topics you're researching right now? Uh, so I think uh, I, I had uh, at some point some uh, imagination about how things would be and some other things that uh, there is so much, uh, let's say, uh, variability or so much uncertainty on how things are going to be that you sometimes don't even imagine and you don't have any expectation how things are going to be. So I think uh, in my field, there is some very nice things. For example, you get to be on the forefront of research of knowledge, on the really cutting edge of uh, things. But on the other hand, I think there is also some things that people normally don't really consider that are uh, some real issues for our field. And one of them, of course, is uh, funding. Uh, so, I mean, we are somehow trying to do the best uh, we can, and we are also limited by because... Uh, funding in research is uh, being cutted by governments right now. So there is a lot of scientists that really want to do the best, but they just cannot they because there is no money available for them and for doing the research and purchasing the equipment that they will do. So I think, uh, yeah, there is uh, both sides of the coin always. Mm -hmm. The mm. missing coin. Yeah, the missing <laughs> coin. <laughs> I'm at my last question. What is for you the most unique part of your research? Hmm. I would say... The most unique part is probably my uh, th th that one that one person brings is their own contribution or their own style, 
and I will say my style is uh, definitely a little bit different than that of uh, at least other colleagues that I have met in that uh, I tend to be uh, a connector. I will say I'm a connector. I like to look at different things and I sometimes forget the way I got to things, but I like to connect things between each other. And uh, once I connect things, I can sometimes uh, bring things in a different perspective than other people that were following a certain way. Uh, so I think that's, uh, of course, has some limitations, but I think it also has a lot of advantages of uh, bringing a new perspective of things because uh, you have a, let's say, completely different uh, way of uh, approaching things based on this uh, process, mental process that occurs in my personal mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it's the last question because it's never the last question. So uh, do you have plans for the future or what are your plans for the future? Uh, so I want to be uh, continue being a problem solver. Of course, nobody knows what the future is awaiting for one. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, I would love to continue um, doing a good job. And um, I like to solve uh, challenging problems and I like to help uh, essentially the society with the skills that I that I have. And I hope there is uh, an opportunity to do so in the future. And yeah, I I hope also the government helps us with uh, uh, some policy that is uh, friendly with uh, people who want to solve problems, problems for humankind. Yeah. Okay, so I wish you good luck with that, Miguel. Thank you for coming. Thank you for participating and having this talk with me. Thank Could you. Thank you. This was the Alumni Audio Lab with Miguel Vasquez-Buflo, process engineer or chemical engineer or problem solver at the <laughs> University of Vienna. I'm Doris Bauer and you listen to Alumni Audio Lab, a podcast of OED. You can listen to all of our former episodes at the website of the OED at oead.at slash alumni minus audio lab. Our next episode will be on air in one month. Alumni Audio Lab. <laughs>